When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. And I'm John Plotz, solo hosting today, hosting my wonderful friend and colleague, Margaret Cohen. So, uh, Margaret, hello. Um, Hi, John. Hi. Um, there's so many ways to introduce you. For example, I could say this comparative literature professor's prize-winning books include her 2010 The Novel and the Sea and 1999's The Sentimental Education of the Novel, and not to mention Profane Illumination, Walter Benjamin and the Paris of Surrealist Revolution from 1993, or maybe I could just call you Stanford's surfing professor. But in any case, Margaret, friend, colleague, welcome. I've been scheming to get you on Recall This Book for so long. It's great to have you. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here with you, John. So today we're here to talk about a book you published only this spring on Princeton University Press, The Underwater Eye, How the Movie Camera Opened the Depths and Unleashed New Realms of Fantasy. And in a sense, I think that title is all we need because I can imagine our readers already flipping their mental Rolodex, at least if you're old enough to have a mental Rolodex, pulling out your favorite scenes from Titanic or the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau or you name it. But I think maybe one good way to start would be simply to ask you to tell future readers of this book um, what they'll find there. You know, just tell us about what, what the book's about. The book is about the importance of film and imagery in enabling audiences to connect to the most remote environment on the planet and really the role played by technologies available to shape our images of that realm. So that's one important through line. And I guess the second important through line, which I only discovered in 2019 when I went to the studio of a, of a famous um, a famous uh, engineer and diver who makes uh, water housings and shoots uh, camera uh, underwater named Pete Romano is, is the importance of water as a medium for creating um, very beautiful and evocative imagery. Can you say more about that water as, as medium? Are you talking about literally the things shot through water as opposed to through air or? Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, when I started the book, I, I was thinking about the undersea and uh, it took me really uh, a long time to realize that um, there was a lot of undersea footage in film that was shot actually in pools and that yeah. um, there were also lots of powerful underwater images that um, were not shot undersea. So pool scenes in films like The Graduate, for example, or yeah. um, The Big Blue. Hollywood Boulevard. Hollywood. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. yeah. Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard. Um, Sorry. Uh, yeah. That's yes, the opening Boulevard. scene. Yes. That, that's the opening a, that's scene, an absolutely yeah. fascinating scene. 
And so um, that got me to thinking about, yeah, the physical properties of the medium of water as extraordinarily evocative and about the long history of shooting through, through that medium. And I then decided I will not focus on any films that are shot what's called dry for wet. So mm -hmm. uh, where you use um, a studio to create the impression of being underwater, but you're actually shooting through air. So, so Margaret, I have a couple of questions that are maybe just technical, but maybe they get us into some of the conceptual differences you're talking about. One is really an ignorant question about the difference between what we see when we're underwater if we have a scuba mask on so that there's air between us and the water versus what I see if I open my eyes and there's just water. Like, is that a meaningful distinction? Um, and the second one is about color. But yeah. Yeah. So so if you don't have a layer of air between your eye and the water, first of all, it's irritating. But mm -hmm. but second of all, your eye can't focus because uh -huh. it needs um, to refract. And um, now you're going to make me look up the science, which I don't have my fingertips. But the refractive properties of um, water are not sufficient for us to be able to focus. So you need mm -hmm. air to give you that layer. Um, and then once you open your eyes underwater through the layer of air, you see very differently from, you see, from the way you see on land because water is 800 times denser than mm -hmm. air. So first of all, you can't see very far. You know, if you go into a pool, this is go into a pool, open your eyes and yeah. note how distance just really fades off and also note how color changes. So the red of those, you know, lane markers, for example, turns kind of brownish and starts yeah. to lose its clarity. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. One of the first conversations you and I had about this was actually about the uh, Malay's painting Ophelia, where we noticed together how the red of the water of the whatever what blossom it is that's lying on the water, you can see it de you know de-redding as it sinks down into the water. That's an amazing fact. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, that was like such a revelation to look at that. And do you remember what year that painting is? It's like 1853, maybe or. Yeah. So that's super early yeah. for knowledge of um, those conditions. I mean, that's the year, I think, when uh, Philip Henry Goss is creating the aquarium. And yeah. it's um, there. there is industry diving, but nobody is paying much attention to it. Uh, you know, the first scientific diver uh, to actually have the idea to go underwater in Sicily, um, a Frenchman named um, Henri Mille Edwards, um, dives in 1843 and it's just a one-off so later yeah. in the century painters start to notice that but it's really extraordinary well it's something i mean we could talk about the pre-raphaelites forever but it is something about that um elaboration of the natural world that made the pre-raphaelites so interesting that they were attentive i mean i think it's just something malay probably saw without necessarily even knowing the theory behind it he just notice things. So I guess there must have been people historically who had made this observation, but but didn't have the conceptual apparatus you're describing. Um, actually, Margaret, can you just, I mean, humor me as a 19th centuryist and talk a little bit, you, you, you really unpack wonderfully in the book um, some, uh, you know, some of the paintings that went on to get at the under sea world. I mean, what is, tell, tell, what's the story there for you? Do you think that, is, is it that film arrives at a time when there's already a prepared space for it? Or does film change things radically from how that sort of painting uh, uh, history? 
Yeah, that, that was a real surprise to me. I mean, I had, like you, a Victorianist, I adore aquariums, you know, I was completely entranced by all the seaside naturalism and the, the presence of women in it. Um, and um, it just didn't really cross my mind that at the same moment that the aquariums are getting started and people are so fascinated with the undersea that there exist technologies and there's industry diving um, practicing the realm of the undersea and that you don't have to look at them in these curated spaces, which are gardens, but you could actually, if you were a salvage diver, you would be in the water. And it just never crossed my mind. Um, and as I started to put together the pieces and realized that the leading salvage divers and, and, and marine engineers in London were just a couple of miles away from the London Zoo, you know, it was all the more extraordinary to me that, that the dots hadn't been connected. Um, but um, no, uh, people just were not interested in the actual undersea conditions, um, you know, the Challenger expedition, they don't dive. I mean, of course they're out in the deep water, but you could imagine that they would go close to the coast. I mean, it's very cumbersome, it's dangerous, but, but the technology was there. Um, and um, of course there's growing knowledge of the undersea with these pioneering oceanographic um, ex expeditions around the world, but um, it, took, it took the movie camera to get scientists to realize that they could dive. And so, you know, the first naturalist diver uh, who writes a, a full account of it, uh, of what he sees, William Beebe or Beebe, I never knew. Do you know how to pronounce that name? I have no idea, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's 1928. And that's after, um, after the invention of underwater film in 1914, which mm. was first shown to a scientific audience. And, Scientists were absolutely captivated. And as I talk about in the book, they, they said they were discovering species they had never known before with the help of the movie camera. Natasha Adamowski traces a history from the aquariums to Cousteau, essentially. Um, they, they, they ask, you know, she asks like, why? Why were people not paying attention? And she connects it to an abiding fear of the depths. I think that the underwater realm or the undersea realm is, is scary. Um, I also think, you know, in, in my previous book, The Novel and the Sea, there was a lot of collaboration between the practical and the scientific communities. So, you know, on Cook's expedition, you have Joseph Banks, who's writing his account, and you have just a lot of um, written documentation. So I think another important element of this story is a class divide between the scientists and the divers, mm -hmm. and that the industry divers were not in communication with um, uh, more elite scientists. And that maybe is part of the story as well. That's really fascinating. Cause that, oh, wow. Cause that makes me think about things like the relationship between Darwin and Wallace, like the people who went out in the 19th century, the people who were sort of paid to go out to hunt specimens versus the people who were theoretically meant to stay back home and just process. And that Darwin and Wallace are sort of two of the rare crossovers. Yes, and then I guess, right. the, yeah. Sorry, I didn't um, mean to interrupt you. That, no, no, that's, I was just thinking about how yeah. and then they, there's that book, but doesn't Ian McCalman have a book called Darwin's Armada, which is about the other scientists after Darwin who basically, like Huxley, who feel like it's okay to go out and go out and, um, yeah, mingle yeah. with the hoi polloi, with the professional <laughs> hoi polloi. Yeah, yeah and, I mean, Ian McCalman is actually was quite influential for me in, in this mm. book. Uh, we, we went diving together, um, or not diving, we went snorkeling together on the barrier reef in That's 2014. Great. Wow. It was awesome. And wow. uh, he's very interested in these uh, 
kind of eccentric figures who do, you know, venture out of the norms of the professional community. Yeah, no, that's great. Can I, can I ask you, I think I told, I, I warned you, I wanted to talk about this. Like you, you sort of drop a couple of times, one of the ways you think about the ocean, and this really relates to my own science fictional interest with space, which I hope we'll get to also, is, is the knowledge versus mastery that it, like that the ocean is this other realm here on earth with us that we had neither knowledge nor mastery of, I suppose, up to a certain point, but then there is this possibility of knowledge without mastery. Yeah. How do you think about those two categories? You know, I guess I, I come out of it from a sort of Frankfurt school, uh, you know, dialectic of enlightenment, of enlightenment. uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, uh, where, um, which goes back to Marx, you know, mm-hmm. that, um, I think the Marxist paradigm for thinking about the relationship between um, uh, the human and the natural world through techne is is a relationship of mastery, uh, and that you know technology captures the energies and the potential of the natural world and turns it into a servant for good and for bad. Um, mm-hmm. But when you're contending with this vast you know force, and yes, we could go to science fiction, we could go to Solaris. I mean, there's mm-hmm. so much about it. It's, it's um, unruliness. Um, oh, yeah. Solaris is such a great example because it controls the tides yeah. as, a, as a being. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Mastery is just not possible. And um, so, of course, this is something I discussed in the novel in the sea and that that captivates me about about it. Um, you can um, devise all kinds of um, technologies and protocols which you need to devise for um, threading a path through through the ocean, but um, you cannot subdue it. Um, and we you know we see that I mean climate change is the most um, uh, the most current example of our consciousness that um, these are forces that are radically outside human control. Mm. sea level rise, ocean acidification. Wait, actually Margaret, can we pursue that a little bit that maybe that brings us to people like Kim Stanley Robinson who wrote who write this sort of cli-fi about that. But you say they're radically outside our control, something like acidification, the death of the corals, the sea level rise that, you know, is going to swallow up cities. But they're also the product of human activity. So, I mean, that's not mastery, I agree, because mastery would imply that you did something and then you could then retain agency. But the, but it is induced by human activity. Yeah, that's a brilliant point, John. And so, so we're getting to our own dialectic of uh, <laughs> the Anthropocene, right? Kind yeah. of. I mean, I do think that the Anthropocene is like the unintended consequences. Like, you know, it's like what we did as a species, but it not necessarily what we did as as willing ethical being <laughs> more just like by burning stuff. Yes. Know? I mean, and I think maybe an interesting twist to that. I'm just thinking, I hadn't thought about that before, but it's really, it's, it's true. And it's brilliant. Um, and scary is um, that a lot of the activities that have degraded ocean environments have occurred from um, industrial processes on land. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it may, we have been, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here, since the since Marx, since the late 19th century, we've been a very land-focused society in terms mm. of where we where we look to for um, the um, the hubs of productivity, right? And so we just use the ocean as a garbage can for all the detritus of. Oh right, it's just a flo- it's just floating plastic spots. Yeah. yeah, 
I see. So in other words, Moby Dick, at least in Moby Dick, we were we were out there harvesting it, um, not just making it a, a way station. That's true. Yeah. We're out there harvesting it and um, hunting whales to extinction. So, yes. you know, your point is also taken that um, we have uh, um, we have expanded sort of capitalist outreach into um, uh, to interfere with species uh, reproduction in the ocean for sure. Um, so uh, it's not just a land story, yeah. but, but climate change and, and industrialization, there's, there's a big land component we stand by that. Right, but, I, but, but this is really helpful, Margaret, because I hadn't really thought about like how, I mean, just, it's just dense on my part. I had really, I had thought about the mastery point at a pretty local level. I hadn't really thought you're talking about the way in which just to be out on the sea in boats or just to be vulnerable, I mean, to be vulnerable, the changes of the sea, you know, in the way that New York city was, you know, last April or whatever it was. I mean, we're, we're just, that's, that's a pretty comprehensive process. It's not just about one. It's not just about like a jaws scene or something. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it goes from the most humble and uh, you know, the, the most personal uh, to, um, yeah, to Hurricane Sandy and the destruction of, uh, you know, um, Lower Manhattan, for example, the power yeah. grid of Lower Manhattan. Yeah. Um, so can I circle that back to the point you were making about the technological forms of coping with the unmasterable sea? Is that it, it, the way you're saying it now, you're emphasizing, you know, the ultimate um, vulnerability of the human body, but you actually spend a lot of time in really wonderful detail unpacking the, you know, not exactly fetishistic, but certainly like, uh, you know, highly technophilic quality of like what it means to for people to be geared up in in under undersea. Like that's a lot of what you think the appeal of these films consistent, right? It's like the the gear. Absolutely. I mean. I, I'm trying to remember the budget for Thunderbolt. It was only like $80,000, a lot at the time, maybe it's $800,000, yeah. you know, to yeah. shoot um, that uh, that um, amazing underwater fight scene, which is just a technologically gadget-filled yeah. gadget uh, wonderland. Um, yes, and uh, so um, I'll just put in a, a quick plug for the novel in the sea. Um, you know, I think yeah. this fascination with... Um, technological innovation and what it enables you to um, to do in this unruly environment uh, is abiding fascination uh, throughout um, media representations of, of maritime environments and marine environments going back to um, the narratives of um, global global sail. Uh, yes, mm-hmm. and so the history of working underwater and underwater filming is um, a history of working in the most challenging environment for um, creating imagery on earth. Um, And uh, it's a history of um, unceasing technological innovation and creativity to make Mm -hmm. up where innovation falls short. Uh, Jacques Cousteau um, said, I think I'm remembering this correctly, that um, it was his interest in filming underwater that drove the development of scuba for him. Uh, so, um, I guess yeah. where I, what I'm working to in answering your question is that, um, there are all kinds of very specific technological innovations, which I'd, I'd be delighted to talk about. Um, and they work in conjunction with the captivation of trying to, um, both record and bring to the surface, 
this unprecedented, unknown environment. And, and it's really remarkable. One of the things that I found so interesting in, in writing this book is that you have, you see a natural environment being constructed that has never before been seen and imagined. Mm -hmm. So you witness, you know, imagination in process uh, in a way that it's, there are very other few other environments on earth. I mean, you can think of parallels like with the high mountains, but, mm -hmm. but it's quite, quite remarkable. Yeah. Well, that's a good point about the high mountains. I, I hadn't really thought about that. Like, uh, I don't know, David Attenborough, but even maybe those mountain movies of the 1930s or something like, yeah. Um, okay. So we've heard about, you've mentioned James Bond already, but uh, that uh, can we talk about other great examples of you, you, you spend some time really dilating on, on wonderful films that have done something new. So I don't know, do you want to go back how far do you want to go back? Do you want to talk about 20,000 Leagues? Do you want to talk about Flipper? What, 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 <laughs> what, where are the amazing breakthroughs, do you think? Okay, so that's, that, that's how I structured my book, was around yeah. breakthroughs. Um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think the 1916 20,000 Leagues is really um, mm. quite an extraordinary film. This was filmed with the first, um, the first technology for filming underwater, which was an enclosed sphere where the camera operator was in air and um, had the instructions coming down from the surface uh, via, via communications, a voice communication. Um, and uh, the, um, this film has extended underwater sequences uh, of a length that you won't see till Thunderball or, or the deep um, uh, later. Um, and uh, it, um, yeah. That funeral procession, really for example. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the funeral procession, talk about um, technology. Uh, it was using a closed circuit um, breathing apparatus, which had been designed for the military during World War I, which was very dangerous. Um, and uh, so they were kind of early scuba, even in 1916. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that, that just witnessing the marvels of the sea in the first sequence and then the underwater, you know, expedition and seeing sharks um, mm -hmm. for the first time on film. I mean, sharks do not survive in aquariums and not sharks of the size that you see right. in that first 20,000 leagues. And there you have the hunters and the sharks in the same frame. So this is not, you know, fake. Um, it's, it's not the um, reproach that um, Bazin would make to Louisiana story, but, you know, Flaherty's documentary where you have the alligator yeah. in one frame and the uh the boy and the other here you have the sharks and the divers together yeah. so so that's yeah. a compl that's a revelation that's you know amazing yeah that's really muhammad coming to the mountain because that's a mountain that's never going to come to muhammad yeah. <laughs> yeah um wow yeah um that's great and then um actually can we talk just because while we're in that period can we talk about the notion of the filming from the sea creatures view. I mean, I think I mentioned to you that Man Ray film that you talk about, about uh, which is called Starfish, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's just, which has like seemingly a starfish cam that shows you how the people in the movie look when glimpsed by the starfish that they're looking at. Yeah, yeah so um, I mean, Man Ray is a, I did want to show that, um, that popular entertainment and high art are both fascinated with the yeah. um, optical and physical properties of the underwater environment. So um, it was 
a delight to me and also echoes the insight of the very brilliant uh, photographer, Alan Sekula and filmmaker, you know, that surrealism was the last movement to take seriously the sea. That's, that's mm-hmm. what he said uh, in mm. the 1980s or 1990s. Um, mm. And uh, they, the surrealists were fascinated with the ways in which um, underwater optics and the behavior of bodies underwater opened and intimated a domain of surreality and other ways of seeing. And so, yeah, for Man Ray uh, to, to look through the eyes of the starfish, um, you know, would, would uh, decenter anthropo, anthropocentric human, you know, the human perspective. Uh, Man Ray couldn't shoot underwater. He didn't have the technology. Mm-hmm. So he was extraordinarily mm-hmm. clever with um, different ways of using blur on the lens and stippled yeah. glass. But he did go to... Um, the surrealist uh, filmmaker and marine biologist who was able to shoot underwater, Jean-Pain Levé, who's famous for his uh, um, films about the non-normative lives of sea creatures, and particularly the non-normative sex lives of sea creatures. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, for yeah. example, uh, he has the starfish, uh, I'm sorry, not the starfish, the seahorse about uh, s- seahorses as an alternative to the um reproductive distribution of labor because the male seahorses uh, give birth. And so he actually films a male seahorse giving birth. He's got a film called The Octopus about octopus sexuality. Uh, yeah, I got to so, yeah. see that one. Yeah, I have an octopus. <laughs> you know, all science fiction people have an octopus fixation. So yeah. Can you say a little bit about um, your thoughts about human characterization underwater, I guess, like the stars of the underwater? I mean, I think we're aware, you know, I don't know, I still kind of want to come back to what I think you call the hyper-masculine cyborgs in James Bond, like the notion of like the kitted out frogman, I think emphasis on man, and then also the kind of bathing beauty side of things. But but those are kind of the two like cliched characters that come to mind for the underwater. Is there is there more to be said about characterization of humans in, in the water? That's such a great and interesting question. Um, so... Um, the human face underwater when you're um, when you're breathing in a comfortable fashion is generally yeah. masked and you can't see yeah. it. So yeah. acting without being able yeah. to use the face is a real yeah. challenge. Yeah. Um, and um, Cameron, actually, just to come back to the abyss for a minute, um, Cameron had special helmets designed um, that would show the face in order mm. to enable his actors to like really more fully act underwater. Um, And uh, before that, um, you have several choices. Um, One is to breath hold. Right. So, you know- That beautiful underwater ballet scene that uh, you talk about is amazing. Yeah. um, Yeah. The Temple of Neptune, no, Temple of, yeah. Oh, um, yeah, going back to Annette Kellerman, who was this extraordinary actress uh, and and swimmer. Um, You know, she's the- the um, the the heroine in the biopic done by Esther Williams, who is also yeah. an extraordinary swimmer yeah. and actress, uh, Million Dollar Mermaid. Um, yeah. She performs uh, these very um, very uh, alluring vaudeville acts, essentially underwater. Um, she was inspired by vaudeville and came out of vaudeville yeah. breath holding. Um, and because women um, are the bathing beauties, they are the ones who have to breath hold. So, you know, then I I have an image in my book of um, Esther Williams in um, a film shot underwater that's a kind of fluffy um, uh, neoclassical fantasia called Jupiter's Darling, where she's 
dancing and breath holding and she's surrounded by these guys who are filming in scuba gear yeah. you know so it's like she's it's what they say about you know ginger rogers she has to do everything backwards and high heels yeah. you know right. she really has to breath hold. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so that's one thing to say. I mean, another thing to say is, yes, there's a, a fascination um, with the rubber latex, you know, fetishistic side to, to scuba gear that um, yeah. I think uh, is um, Hollywood is very reluctant to, um, to broach. So, you know, in the 1950s, it's all kind of lighthearted and romantic. And I, I have, as you know, a large chunk of the book on Sea Hunt where uh, Lloyd Bridges is, uh, yeah. you know, he's this, um, uh, it's beefcake. I mean, he's also a brilliant actor and it's, it's a lot of fun, that whole, that whole series. Uh, but it's all very, um, it's very, um, very lighthearted. Whereas when you get to Bond, um, I think there's a lot more made of the fascination. Um, I mean, you know, Thunderball is so explicitly um, interested in sadomasochism that uh, uh, all that rubber and the the men, you know, brawling in their scuba suits and you can't see their faces. And I mean, yeah. th that has a uh, much more clearly fetishistic uh, component. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So can I, can I also, um, can we come back to the the space and undersea question too? Uh, just maybe remind us of some of the things you say in the book because I really love how you set up these two, uh, you know, previously unavailable and now potentially attainable realms in the mid twentieth century. And obviously, you know, when I teach science fiction now, my students think in terms of those space films that start coming out in the sixties and seventies and eighties. So yeah, but clearly, I think you, you you know part of what you persuaded me of is that the actual experience of underwater becomes like a lens through which people can think about what's you know space as a as an alien but available atmosphere technologies to access space and the undersea both emerge from the second world war um and are um developed in the 1950s and space and the undersea are um equivalent realms for human exploration and both are fascinating um and yeah. so there are underwater habitats that are said in the 1960s um and uh there's um there's a lot of interest in the potential for colonization undersea i mean is that a good thing a bad thing we could discuss that mm. but then by the 1970s um the cultural focus and the um the the resources in the united states certainly um have shifted to outer space and um Although the undersea is heavily practiced by professionals, it's you know submarines, undersea cables, um, it is not captivating to the general public. Mm. Um, and instead, um, it's the fantasy of going to the moon, of going to Mars. It's Star Trek. It's um, the uh, the undiscovered realms. And why, you know, it's Kubrick's two thousand and one. Why space should take on that charisma? And the undersea should lose out when it's such a productive realm uh, is is just a puzzle. And um, so, you know, now I would turn it back to you and say, like, <laughs> why do you think space is so charismatic uh, when it's yeah. so inaccessible compared in some ways to the undersea? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I think it's a great question. Like, I'm writing something about sort of... Um, you know, Hannah Arendt talks about Sputnik at the beginning of Human Condition, and she says a little bit about science fiction. She says that, and just almost like an afterthought, she says that, except I think an important afterthought, she says, you know, that we, we ought to look to science fiction to tell us how we conceive of mastery of the earth. And I think the idea of Sputnik being over our heads 
it does seem like it instantly changes uh, people's vision of what the earth is. I mean, I don't know. I'm sort of slowing down because I'm thinking it out loud. I, I like your your time frames in terms of the 50s and 60s. Like you tend to think in science fiction terms, you tend to think about the golden age as being, you know, jump started by the fact of atomic explosions in the 40s. I mean, there was lots of science fiction before that, but the 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 atom bomb terrifies people, makes them think, oh, we really could blow each other up. So the planet seems very small and vulnerable then. And then Sputnik, I mean, even though it annoys the US government, I think the US taxpayer kind of likes it because it's exciting. You know, it just opens this this gateway. And and the question you're asking, as I understand it, is like, why is that gateway any better than the gateway to like 70% of the surface of the earth, which is actually accessible to us? Um, Yeah. Can I turn it back to you? I I feel like you've probably got a better answer than I do. So what's the... I mean, no, I think... um... I think this is a, it's a puzzle, you know, for the historians of culture and science and particularly those of us with a maritime bias. I mean, yeah. you know, I think the, the answers I have are just so speculative, you know, that it's easier to fantasize about what you actually don't have to engage with in a mm-hmm. nitty gritty way that mm-hmm. the depths are um, in some way, well, not in some way that, that humans just don't belong there. And there's such difficulty working down there that it's very obviously a space that requires professional expertise. And in that way, you know, fantasy just can't roam free. Uh, It um, maybe activities there are too complex. I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I think it's a, it's a lost opportunity. And I think now we're realizing that, you know, we have to, integrate all the activities conducted undersea into our account of the cosmos and the planet, um, uh, both because they're integral to, to, you know, human planetary transactions like undersea cable networks, for example, um, and because, um, because of climate change. Yeah. So, you know, just I'm really glad you mentioned Solaris. And I guess maybe the movie Interstellar also is relevant because it has the ocean planet in it as well. But but that point in Solaris that is definitely not in the Tarkovsky movie, and I don't think it's in the more recent movie is either, which is that the sentience of the creature, the like Gaia like living creature is precisely about tide control, because if it couldn't control its tides, it would be the planet itself would be destroyed. So there's this sense that mastery of the oceans is the thing you cross the space, you cross space to find. And that in the Tarkovsky movie, which is probably from the seventies or something, it's a land-based encounter, right? Like when he encounters the alien intelligence, he just goes down into that kind of dacha kind of space. So yeah, I, now I feel like the timing of Solaris is really significant. That's great. Um, That's so cool. I never thought of that, but you're right. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I just, I mean, I'm flashing on all those scenes where he goes back into his memory in the dacha and, yeah. you know, like, why is he not out, you know, in whatever yeah, the name the of movie, the movie, it's this, I mean, in the, in the novel, it's this very uh, un, unlikely tower. They have very fragile tower yeah. that's on the ocean. And yeah, um, yeah, I, 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 that's, that's really interesting. So that um, makes perfect sense, given, you know, where Lem is writing from and uh, where Tarkovsky is, you know, filming. And yeah, 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 that's great. But have you, I haven't seen the George Clooney movie. Have you? Do you remember? No, how I it's, haven't. Yeah. So, OK. 
after Tarkovsky, how can you? How can you yeah. go anywhere? <laughs> okay. Well, I'm I I want to hear from some listener who thinks that George Clooney solved <laughs> solved the secrets of the grad of uh, the Solaris. Um, hey, Margaret, as we as we sort of I think we're turning the corner to home, but can I ask you a kind of broad open question, which is like, did you have an unexpected piece of research or just like a, a, a amazing either archival find or piece of film discovery as you were doing this book? Something that really just sent you off in a whole new direction. One of the the underappreciated films in the U.S. It was a, it was a cult film in France. Is um, Luc Besson's The Big Blue about mm. this rivalry between uh, free divers, um, yeah. and it just has the most stunning underwater imagery that um, was filmed at very low budget, um, and uh, you know influenced by surrealism, influenced by um, uh, the. Um, ability to create these f fantasy scenarios using water. Um, and I could go on about, I, in fact, you know, I have a, a small color insert in my book because one of the challenges in the book was how to write about color with black and white imagery, you know? Yeah. So we have a small color insert and a, a disproportionate number of the images are from the big blue yeah. because they're just so stunning. Yeah. It, lo it looks amazing. I still, it's still on my list. I went right out and saw the Man Ray film, but I haven't seen Big Blue yet. Yeah. Well, that's actually a great um, cue, Margaret, to ask us that, you know, as listeners know, we always ask this question of like the recallable book, though we have a capacious definition. So let's say the recallable artwork, which is basically, you know, if you enjoyed this conversation, what is the one piece, you know, piece of work that you would point people to? So yeah. Do you want to, can I hand that over to you? Okay. Well, so I've already mentioned the big blue, so I yeah. need to mention something different. Um, yeah. I guess um, I'm going to be teaching it in my um, narrative poetics course. So that's a strong endorsement. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Creature from the Black Lagoon by Jack oh. Arnold. Uh, oh my God. Love that. 1954. Yeah. 3D. So I was, yeah. I was looking up IMDB trivia you yeah. know, on it and it, apparently Ingmar Bergman watched it every year on his birthday. Ah. Uh, oh, wow. Uh -huh. And it was inspired by Mexican cinematographer uh, uh, Gabriela Figueroa, who filmed um, The Pearl, which is like you know oh. a, a masterpiece of Mexican cinema, um, uh -huh. and and a story that he told um, told some Hollywood uh, reporters during making Citizen Kane. This is all off IMDb trivia, so who knows? But um, it's it's just a really um, beautiful. The, the underwater sequences are. Um, very innovative, and I could go on about that. But um, this interspecies um, love affair, which is presented um, mostly as longing from the side of this very sympathetic creature, it seems to me, although the creature gets integrated into Hollywood conventions, yeah. is extraordinarily moving. And, and that underwater pas de deux between the creature and the um, Kay, the scientist uh, assistant, it's just a, a memorable, beautiful scene that could be, you know, surrealist. It, it just it, it just stands out. And, you know, to to just make my case that you should you should see this film, um, you know, Guillermo del Toro was inspired by it in making The Shape of Water, uh, which um, uh, won Best Picture in 2017, which I didn't yeah. include because its underwater sequences are shot uh, dry for wet. Ah, uh, I but, wondered. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. But he then gives sympathy to both sides of the story, both. Yeah the 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 creature and then uh the woman in love with him so uh yeah yeah i would say creature from the black 
Okay, that's great. Well, so mine is actually from 1953 too. So maybe we're in the same ballpark. Is that I mentioned this novel to you, John Wyndham, who's basically a young adult science fiction writer. He wrote Day of the Triffids. So he wrote a novel called The Kraken Wakes, in which the idea is that aliens come from another planet, but they come, I think they come from Jupiter. I can't, I'm a little fuzzy on the details, but they need intensely high pressure. So they arrive and immediately plunge to the depth you know, the deepest depths of our oceans and then cause the oceans to rise, um, thus, you know, being to blame the giving humans a good villain to fight against. But also there's just this incredible image that in my mind sort of merges together the space of the space, space of space and of deep sea, um, because they're both from beyond and also, you know, down in the depths. Um, anyway, it's, a, you know, Wyndham is amazing because he is a children's book writer, but he puts pictures in your head that you don't really that can't you can't get rid of and that's, ah, that's, that's extraordinary them, so. i feel like i just yeah. want to continue this conversation because now i'm yeah. about to scroll through all the um nuclear kind of grade b disaster movies oh yeah sure you know the attack of the giant crab monsters yeah yeah yeah. it always <laughs> that... comes from the mariana trench or something yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah. yeah it's interesting because like there's that 19th century tradition of the hollow earth novel i feel like they're more french ones than than uh than American than American or English ones, but you know the Hollow Earth is replaced by the crack in the Earth, you know, which is those deep trenches, um, the upside down Everests under the oh, ocean. Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Which truly are geologically on a continuum. You know, now you're going to get me talking about my favorite place I live, of Monterey yeah. Bay, and the way yeah. in which you know the mountains go down into the sea and into this deep ocean trench. Uh, just five or 10 miles offshore that goes down to 5,000 feet. So it is all connected. That is fascinating, man. I wish, okay. I wish next time, next book, what's your next book, Margaret? I guess that's a great question to end on. Do you have one or um, is it still the ocean? Uh, well, okay. So we may need to cut this. I don't know what you think of it, but um, I'm, I'm considering writing a book about um, learning to surf late in life, because as you did say at the beginning, I'm a surfer yeah. and what that yeah. has taught me as a professor about both teaching and learning. Wow. Amazing. Cool. Do it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Well, thanks. So Margaret, this has been a, a huge pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to beam in. Um, and if you enjoyed this conversation, dear listeners, you may want to check out our um, older conversation with the amazing Mike Lee, as well as our recent conversation uh, with Dana Stevens about her new Buster Keaton book. So thank you all for listening and hope to uh, talk with you again soon. Recall This Book was founded by Elizabeth Ferry and me, John Plotz. It is sponsored by Brandeis and the Mandel Humanity Center. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen. Website design and social media by Miranda Peary of the English Department. We're eager to hear your comments, criticisms, and thoughts. If you liked what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at RTB, thanks for listening.